Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. But tonight, of course, um, we are absolutely delighted to have Latifa Salome with her first ever book. It's always something special for us here at Skylight when we get to have a debut author and um, a local as well, somebody born and raised here in L.A. Um, Her first book, Cake House, has been called Intense, Savagely Beautiful, Complicated, A Mystery, A Cloak of Family Dysfunction, An Incredibly Gifted Debut, Tense, Shocking, Seductively Dark, Accomplished, Absolutely Terrifying, and Mesmerizing. Let's please give her a warm round of applause. I didn't know half of that. That was exciting. <laughs> Hi, everyone. It's so good to see you. I'm so excited um, that so many wonderful and beautiful faces are here tonight. Wow, I get a microphone. I didn't even know that. That's Hi. <laughs> Welcome to my reading for The Cake House, uh, my debut novel here. Um, I first wanted to thank you all for coming. I can't even begin to say how grateful I am to see all of you here to support uh, this book and myself. Uh, It means so much to me, and I'm so thrilled to see everyone here. Um, I'd also like to take a moment and thank Skylight Books um, so much for hosting. Uh, This is one of my favorite bookstores in Los Angeles and to be able to have my uh, debut party here is really meaningful to me it means so much so I'm going to read uh, from the first chapter this little guy here um, a few pages from the beginning and a little bit uh, from the end um, so I'm going to start and then after I read Uh, We can open up for questions and answers. If anyone has any questions and answers, that would be great. And then afterwards, we can have some more wine. And look at that. Who brought that thing? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Uh, And more cookies. And look. It's like a a cake house. That's really (laughs) exciting. I love it. Hopefully not. Not quite like the one in the book that would be bad <laughs> alright so um, without further ado the Cast, chapter one I met Claude and Alex the day my father died the stranger whose name was Claude held my mother by her arms while she screamed he stood with blood splattered across his face and over his clothing and she slid through his hands like a child who didn't want to go to bed didn't want to take her medicine My father lay twisted, a gun at his feet. One side of his head spilled red onto the sodden carpet, his blood spreading inch by inch in a widening circle. I fell to my knees and crawled toward him. 
Claude shouted, get her out of here, and a pair of hands grabbed my waist and hauled me from the room, dragging me to the other end of the house, where sliding glass doors led to a garden with a silhouette of a fountain. I screamed, screamed until I started choking. Someone shook me hard, the tall teenager with pale hair, paler than I had ever seen, and in my neighborhood he would have been called Barito for that hair. I'd only just met him. He was Claude's son and had been instructed to wait with me by the car when my mother went inside with Claude to talk. He had been silent and moody. Unnerved, I stared at the house until my father's car tore up the hill, coming to a jerky stop inches from the old Honda that my mother drove. I tried to grab my father's arm, but he pushed me aside, banging on the front door until it opened enough for him to shove his way in. When I tried to follow, the boy caught me and wouldn't let go, not until the gunshot rang out. Now he held me again, my back against his chest, his breath in my ear, chanting over and over. I swear I didn't know he would do that. I swear it. I didn't know. Alex, Claude yelled, get over here. The boy turned but still held me close. His voice vibrated against my back. I don't think I should leave her. Alex. His name was Alex, and that was something concrete to hold on to. I concentrated on the beating of his heart. In the distance, sirens wailed. Claude scrambled into my view. Blood sprayed across half his face like a bad sunburn. The police were going to be here any second. I need your help, he said to Alex. How is she? I started to scream again. Claude covered his ears until Alex clamped his hand over my mouth and sat me down on the couch. The sirens hurtled closer. Dahlia, called Claude. My mother had wrapped a blanket over her shoulders to hide the blood staining her left sleeve and down the front of her ruffled sundress. Her hair, usually sprayed into buoyant waves, hung limp. She tried to light a cigarette, but her hand shook. Claude lit one for her. Rosara, she said, her voice raspy. She wiped at the blood on her cheek, leaving a smudge of orange rust. Some men are coming here to talk to us about what happened. What happened? My throat hurt from screaming. Yes, they shouldn't need to speak with you, but if they do, what happened? I repeated. She blinked. The sirens blared, and Claude said there was no time. My mother squeezed my face before, between her two hands, the cigarette hot near my cheek. Listen to me. He did it, I said. He did it. My mother shook her head. There's no time for this. Do you hear me? If the police talk to you, you have to tell them you don't know anything. I scrunched my eyes closed, tried to push her away. The sirens died. There was a knock on the door and loud voices. Promise me, she shook my shoulders, shook me hard. Say it. You don't know what happened. You didn't see. Rosario, you do as I say. Tell them you don't know anything. Tell them or else, or I don't know what will happen. Do you understand? She was crying now, chest heaving. The cigarette smoke stung my eyes and I couldn't breathe. I didn't understand, but I couldn't bear to see her cry. I could never bear to see her cry. When I was younger and she cried, I always begged her to stop. I don't know what happened, I said, and she relaxed, her grip, falling onto the couch next to me, rocking back and forth. My promise not to say anything hadn't helped. There was noise and commotion at the front of the house. Two officers in tan uniforms entered with Claude and Alex close behind. She's been through a lot, said Claude. We'd appreciate it if you keep her out of this. I didn't move from my spot on the edge of the couch. Outside, the day grew dark, and then it was night. 
I stared through the sliding doors. The wind tossed the trees around, bending their tops this way and that. But if I refocused my eyes, the garden disappeared, and I saw the rest of the room's reflection in the glass. Could see my mother sitting in one of the dining room chairs, pale-faced and wrapped in her blanket, as she spoke with one of the officers and described how my father had the gun hidden in his sweatshirt front pocket. How he pointed the gun at her and at Claude before pointing it at himself. A man knelt in front of me, changing the focus once again. My name's Deputy Mike Nunez, said the officer. Are you all right? Deputy Mike Nunez had dark eyes and skin a shade of brown that reminded me of my father's favorite sweatshirt, the ragged one that he always liked to wear. I wasn't in the house. I didn't see anything, I whispered. He tilted his head. That's all right. Do you live here? It was the last day of school. I had been hanging out with Jose and Sophie on the steps to Sophie's apartment building, talking about what I wanted when I turned 14 and what our plans were for the summer when my mother's car screeched to a halt in front of us. She demanded I get in, that there wasn't any time to explain. Our clothes were in garbage bags and, the bo- and boxes spilled over the back seat. It wasn't until we sped down the freeway that I understood we were running away. But I knew my father would follow us, and he had, all the way to this house and into the front room where his body lay. I wasn't in the house. I didn't see anything, I repeated. Can you tell me who does live here? Claude and my mother continued speaking to the officer who was jotting notes on the pad in his hand. The blanket around her shoulders slipped each time a camera flash lit up the front room. I licked my lips. His name is Claude, I said. He lives here with his son. Alex was watching, standing back from the activity near the stairs leading up to the second floor. Are they friends of yours, asked the officer. I've never met them before, I said. But I remember, please leave her alone, said my mother, stepping between us. She doesn't know anything. Deputy Mike stood up. I was just making sure she was okay. As they talked, their faces came in and out of focus. Behind me, two men placed my father's sheet-covered body on a gurney. My mother stopped talking and watched the body being wheeled out, forcing Deputy Mike to look up from his pad. I watched as well through the reflection on the glass doors, like it was a scene from a television show. Once the front door was shut again, the spell broke, and movement returned to the room. In the reflection, I saw my father step into focus, framed by the doorway as if his body hadn't just left the house. His eyes met mine across the chaos. That was the first time I saw the ghost. to continue reading from uh, uh, the last few pages of the same chapter, um, jumping a little bit. So to catch up anyone who hasn't read the first chapter yet, um, after that, uh, Rosara sort of is kind of in shock, really, from this traumatic event, and withdraws severely uh, to the point where she's hiding in the closet of the bedroom in the second floor. And... um, she keeps seeing this image of her father's ghost everywhere. It's really scaring her, uh, particularly in windows and reflections on glass. Um, to add to the trauma, her mother remarries very 
suddenly and very suspiciously to this man, Claude, and they are living in this house, and Rosara really doesn't understand what's going on, and she hasn't left the closet. Um, so, there's that. And um, uh, she gets so scared one night, um, she sees the, fa- the image of her, her father, this ghost, inside the closet with her, and she gets the hell out of there and runs out of the house. She's completely naked. She uh, grabs uh, her stepfather, Alex's bike, and heads out into the street, down the road, and is eventually picked up by the same officer who was questioning her, takes her to the police station, sheriff station, and... Uh, her mom and Claude pick her up, they take her home. That act of running away sort of woke her up, kind of got her out of her fugue state. And um, she's back to being more or less a normal kid, depending, you know, uh, given the circumstances, and um, is talking to her very new stepbrother, Alex, in the garden. I sat down on the damp, mossy stone, and Alex brought his bike closer to the fountain, picked up the discarded rag, and started cleaning again. I thought it was weird that he was cleaning his bike. It had clearly never been cleaned before. Nervous in the awkward silence, I began to hum. Alex looked up. Do you like music? He asked, wiping at the handlebars. Can you sing? Not really, I said, but regretted it when he fell silent. It was the first time he'd ever asked me a direct question. I tried again. There is a song I know that my mother used to sing for me. He flashed a smile full of white teeth. Let's hear it. The fountain appeared bottomless, full of tangled water plants. Are there fishes in there? I searched for the gleam of fish scales. I dipped my finger in the water, causing ripples. It felt silky. Yes, but after our noise and splashing, they'll never show themselves. They like to hide, he said, sitting next to me. Smart fishes. I looked at him. Do you like my mother? Not particularly. And I don't like your father, I said, wanting to hear his voice again. What do you think about them getting married? He shook his head. With his long fingers, he picked up a stick from the ground and stripped it clean of bark. He was older than me, maybe 16. I wasn't sure. Thin, narrow face, narrow shoulders. He was unlike his father. I could pick apart his features, those that came from Claude and those that came from elsewhere, like his eyes with their cool distance. But when he smiled, he resembled Claude, a kind of charm with easy confidence. When he smiled, I thought I would do anything he asked. Then I sang for him. I sang my mother's favorite lullaby, a French song about a little girl, a little bird caught stealing. She said her mother used to sing it to her. She said it used to make her laugh. Qu'est-ce qu'elle a donne fait la petite hirondelle? My song changed the way he looked at me, more like the way Jose sometimes had. But with Alex, it made me feel dizzy, like I could fall backward, arms spread wide to splash into the fountain and willfully drown. Sing it again, he asked. I did, holding onto the edge of the fountain. He made me nervous, so I stared at the puffy clouds and the dark blue sky until I finished. He could be patient and kind, but when his gaze would shudder and I couldn't tell what he was thinking. Were you worried about me this morning? I wanted to tease him. I wanted to flirt. To do something with my useless hands, I mounted his bike again, riding around the fountain. He steadied me as I wobbled, and I wished I hadn't asked anything or spoken, feeling foolish and young and ugly. He shrugged, dismissive. 
You want me to say yes. I think you like to cause trouble. Don't you? I countered, balancing on my tiptoes until I nearly fell, holding onto his bike as if it was the same thing as holding onto him. Where's your mom? As soon as I asked the question, Alex changed. It wasn't a big change. He didn't shout or get angry and say it wasn't any of my business. He did nothing except continue to watch my haphazard progress on his bike. I don't have one, he said, and no, I don't like to cause trouble. He tossed the stick he'd stripped bare out over the garden. It twirled in the wind and disappeared into the tall grass. It doesn't get you anywhere. He walked away, aloof once again. I started after him, but my foot caught on one of the pedals, scraping my skin. The bike crashed to the ground, falling at my feet with the handlebars twisted. By the time I disentangled myself, Alex was already pushing the sliding glass doors open, pausing only long enough to toss the dirty rag onto a pile of other dirty rags by the doors. The scratches on my shin stung. When I looked down to steady them, a second pair of feet appeared next to mine. The ghost stood in the bright sunshine. I had been wrong to think that he couldn't appear in daylight, wouldn't appear in the garden. He was pale, solid, yet removed. He wasn't like those ghosts shown in movies or TV shows, see-through and made of mist. I had nowhere to hide, nowhere to run. This close, I could see the left side of his face, its pale, freckled skin marred by the black circle of charred flesh. He was wearing the same clothes he died in, his favorite sweatshirt with the front pocket and paint stains, his jeans and his loafers with the holes in them. It was as if he had climbed out of the water of the fountain to surprise me. There's my girl, he said. He stared down at the twisted bicycle, which lay before us like a corpse. I remember when you were born. You were such a strange baby. You didn't cry when you first came out of your mother. The nurses were freaked out by your silence. So quiet, not a peep. But you opened your eyes immediately and looked at me and at the faces of the doctors and nurses with your bright eyes that always made everyone nervous. You had eyes like two black holes, easy to get sucked into. They said there was no way you could see yet, but they were wrong. You could see everything. So quiet and only a few hours old, you knew everything in the world. It scared me. I took a step back, nearly overcome by an instinct to run. But he was my father, and his words grabbed hold and kept me planted to the ground. When he lived, he had talked all the time to my mother about his work, where they had argued about money, but he had never spoken like the ghost did, with such calm, quiet determination. He turned his head as if to examine the dead bike from a different angle. I felt guilty, he continued, as if he weren't speaking to me, as if I were the one who didn't exist. Frightened of my own kid? I mean, you fucking scare the shit out of me. Your mom was sick when you were born, so it was just me taking care of you, and I sometimes left you in your crib, let you lie there. I'd look down at your fist balled up and struggling, all of you wiggling and angry and your eyes wide open and black and so goddamn silent. I didn't want to hold you. My face felt warm, and it hurt to breathe. Of all the things I had expected the ghost to say, it wasn't that he feared me. My father loved me. I tried to remember what he had been like alive, but the ghost was all I could see. I thought, maybe that was why you never cried, because you were mad at me. You didn't make a sound, not until your mother got better and was able to hold you. Maybe you were waiting for her, and then, God, you were loud. After all that silence, your crying was so goddamn loud. I thought you would shatter windows. 
Even as a ghost, he had blue eyes. Now they were tinged with blood. A ghost stretched out its hand, but I stepped out back, swallowing a cry of fright. We were happy once, he said, oblivious to my fear. Before Claude took everything from me, we were happy, your mom and me. She loved me, didn't she? So uncertain, my heart broke. Dad, I said, forcing sound through my throat. Don't trust Claude. He lies, he said in that too familiar voice. Then he was gone. Any questions? <laughs> Someone ask a question. <laughs> sure. When did you start writing? Uh, sometime in the spring of 2007 is when I first started writing it. But what it looked like back then is very different from what it looks like now. It took um, almost that whole summer. And almost everything that I wrote that summer I threw out and started again in that fall. So, But the... the Beginnings of it were in the 2007, spring of 2007. Anyone else? So we were talking the other day and talking about this, describing the book as gothic or a gothic novel. How would you describe it? What do you think of it? Um, I didn't think gothic when I wrote it. I thought more uh, mysterious, I think. It's not really a mystery because you you sort of already know everything, but... Um, I didn't put a label on it, really, when I started writing it. Like, I'm going to write a gothic novel, or this is going to be a mystery. I didn't do that. I just sort of... I think I was really concentrating on Hamlet and then forgetting Hamlet. So that was... I was trying to do both of that, sort of, like, that's where I'm jumping off of, and I'm not looking at it again. And so I just kind of wrote it and sort of let it be what it was. So, yes? Have you always felt that you're a writer? No. I didn't always feel that I was a writer. Someone asked me that very, very recently. I, was, I come from a family of artists, and my mom, who's here, uh, actually wanted me to be a musician, I think, more than anything else. So I was, <laughs> I was um, mostly uh, playing the piano a little bit as a kid and uh, a little bit of the cello, and then I sort of rebelled a little bit and went into acting and did theater, and theater was mostly what I considered myself as. It was a theater person, either as an actor or as a designer or a stage manager in theater. Um, I have some high school friends here, and we all went to high school together at the arts high school, and um, that's kind of what I thought of myself. I didn't really think of myself as a writer until I started writing, and then... Then I thought of myself as a writer. Yes? Hey, uh, how has the experience of writing the book changed you? That's a tough question. <laughs> um, it's really, I think it has changed me a considerable amount. Uh, it's made me patient because it's a long haul. It's uh, the marathon, you know. Speaking of the marathon is this weekend, but the, it, you have to really pace yourself when you're writing a book. Um, so learning to be patient, learning not to push the story, uh, all those things, many of which are translatable into your everyday life and things that, you know, you learn to be patient in your own life because you have no choice, kind of. <laughs> that was, I think, the biggest thing, really. Um, and not pushing the story 
because sometimes you want it you want it to be a certain way and it's not going to be that way sometimes you have to sort of let it go and just let the let it be what it is and life is a lot like that so I, there are some lessons to that I learned in writing this to sort of take one day at a time not fret too much and let things happen as they are that's some more more or less <laughs> yes Barbara what did you think of the writing program I love the writing program at USC. Unfortunately, it has been discontinued. Wow. Yes. Um, the MPW program is ending in 2016, which is unfortunate. They have a, a different program at USC, so if you want to go to USC for a writing program, I think they still have a traditional MFA, but the MPW program, which is slightly different, it had a more expansive um, uh, sort of thesis, a, little, a different uh, focus than a traditional MFA program. But I did love it. it. It exposed you to a lot of different writers that you probably wouldn't have been exposed to in an, a traditional MFA program. Uh, it was a lot more relaxed in that way, and uh, you had a, you kind of came out with a little bit more of exposure to different kinds of writing and different sort of environments. Which so I really liked it. Hi. Um, I am actively thinking really hard <laughs> is what I'm doing. I, it's funny, my agent just asked me that question today because it's, it's about time to start really putting things down. Um, so I have several ideas for the next novel. And uh, it's just a matter of which one is really, you know, it's a bit like throwing things at the wall and whatever sticks is the one you're going to go with. So... Um, it's going to be another novel. I'd like it to be another novel um, set in Los Angeles, but I'm not sure yet if that's really what's going to be the case. Yes? How was it working with an editor, and did they um, encourage or impose any changes that you resisted, that you had to kind of... Yeah. 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 Um, I loved my editor at Vintage Books. Uh, she was amazing, and I have gathered from other... Uh, writers that I've met, other novelists, that my experience with her was somewhat different than a lot of people's experiences with their editors. I don't know if that's true because I've only had one. Um, so I'm just kind of gathering that sort of maybe. Um, but I didn't only have her. I also had an advisor when I was at, um, at the MPW program. And both of them gave me those gut-wrenching notes where you're just like, oh, you can't be serious. I mean, his, his note, um, I don't think he's here. He, uh, he told me to cut the 200 pages from the beginning of my novel. He said, that's not where your story starts. Your story starts here. And it took me like um, a week, I think, to sort of be like, uh, okay. And I did it, and I was like, gone. And do it again, you know. And then with um, Andrea at Vintage Books, when she read the manuscript, and it was before they, uh, she bought it, before Vintage bought it, and hadn't agreed to buy it. Um, so this was just me getting notes from a very kind editor, not with any, without any expectation that they would buy the book. She also told me that my, the beginning of my novel was not where the beginning it was. And it was a pretty big note to switch the whole beginning around and change it vastly. That, that also took about a week to, 
to digest. And then I was on a phone call with her, and the way she described it sort of opened the idea up a little bit for me, and I was able to swallow it and say, hey, this is actually a really good thing. And once I was able to see how I would change it and had a roadmap to follow, um, the change was no longer scary, and it was actually really exciting. So, and then... She was a pretty hands-on editor, and I got reams of notes. I mean, you don't even understand the, the, the level of intricate notes that she gave me chapter by chapter on this manuscript for about two years. So it was pretty intense, pretty intense experience. Hi. Hi. Uh, what are some of your favorite authors? Where do you draw your inspiration from? Um, so I... I've always said that I was a really big fan of uh, 19th century British literature, and that's um, Thomas Hardy's really my favorite from that genre, uh, from that time period, rather. Um, he wrote these amazing, really complex stories about humanity, and, and really, you know, if you've ever read or seen the movie, you can just see the movie of the mayor of the Casterbridge, mayor of Casterbridge. I mean, in the beginning, uh, a man is struggling with a wife and a, and a small kid, and in a fit, uh, he swaps his wife and his kid, he sells them for a piece of land, and then has uh, prospered so much, but the entire time he's prospered to the point where he's mayor of Casterbridge, he's has this guilt from this act where he sold his wife and daughter off for, you know, 20 bucks or whatever it was. Um, that kind of a meaty story was really what got me going. Nowadays, a little bit more modern, um, I'm really a big fan of Hillary St. John, John Mandel. Uh, she just recently wrote a book called uh, Station Eleven that blew my mind. I thought it was fantastic. I think everybody should read it. Um, 